Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Sam. I work here. Welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. We are a serious, credible institution dedicated to learning and research. We run a serious, credible program events dedicated to learning and research. And we have a serious, dedicated, credible speaker today who is dedicated to learning and research. His name is Ross McFarlane. He is Research Engagement Officer at Wellcome Library. His own research incorporates a range of topics from the history of early recorded sound to urban folklore in Edwardian London to Henry Wellcome and his collecting activities. Uh, he has, for example, a forthcoming article on death, medicine, and Robert Burns. And with that serious, credible reputation, uh, I see that our topic today is about mermaids. Yes, mermaids. I'm rely reliably informed by my colleagues and by our speaker that this is a serious, credible topic, um, and I leave it to you to decide. Ross. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, to keep up the theme of this being a credible, uh, scientific, uh, well-thought-through talk, uh, I have to relate at this stage that the origins uh, of my appearance here today um, arise from a talk given in a pub uh, a few months ago. So uh, as well as being somebody who is used to speaking in uh, the environs of the Wellcome Library, not too far away from here, I'm a man um, who can be heard talking in pubs often with a reason as well. So, uh, so it's from that, sort of, uh, that conversation I had with Haley, uh, one of the members of staff here, that I was invited, and I feel very honored to be here at, uh, at the Hunterian today to uh, offer some thoughts on the topic of spotting mermaids from William Cliff to Sir Henry Wellcome uh, and beyond. So what I'm going to be doing today is to be talking about how the topic of mermaids links these two uh, individuals uh, on the screen here. Um, the top will feature details of the mermaid, the notion of the mermaid as a creature, primarily in Western culture, but we're all, we'll also, as we will see, um, show how it has an important attachment to Japan as well. Uh, I'll be touching on notions of collecting in the 19th century and also notions of expertise and ownership during that time uh, as well. And I'll bring things up to date into the 21st century with details of our current research project, which leads to my involvement in the fishy, watery world of mermaids. Um, and I think once, one, one, one thing I found out from doing this research is once you find one mermaid, more seem to follow. Okay. So my first image is to get us uh, familiar, remind ourselves what we think about when we think about mermaids. This is uh, a painting by J.W. Waterhouse from 1901, uh, a famous painting that I'm sure many of you in the audience have seen before, The Mermaid, uh, from the collections of the Royal Academy. Just to situate us and remind us of notions of uh, the mermaid as a, as a creature that slightly alluring in quality. We think of a mermaid, we think of obviously of the sea, of the, of the fish tail, uh, the upper half of, of a human. But we think of long hair, often long sort of uh, hair shown in this painting here, and hair being combed as well. And I'll sort of mention a little bit about that uh, with the next image that I will show, which is this one. Uh, an earlier 
image of a mer person, I should say here. We have more of a hairy chest going on in this image here. This is something from uh, 1491 from a work from, uh, from that year. And I wanted to use this image to start getting us to think about uh, earlier notions of um, mermaids and mermen and mer-creatures. And to think about where our understandings of mermaids actually come from. And I wanted to mention, uh, well, the earliest example it seems in, in, the, in, the, in the records of mythology of mermaids is uh, a goddess from the Near East called uh, Atergatis. And Atergatis was personified of both light and dark aspects of love. So when you think of the alluring nature of the mermaid, this is where it starts to come from. So it's really the Greeks who sort of bring this, uh, this figure, Atergatis, into their understandings. They merge it with uh, Aphrodite and notions of Venus as well from um, Roman mythology. And the, the representation of Venus holding a looking glass um, in mirrors the uh, image of mermaids combing their hair. So that's that notion of where the hair starts to come from. So a book like this uh, in the medieval period um, many bestiaries from that period started to have uh, uh, representations of mermaids in there. And it's around that time that we start having more and more uh, sightings of mermaids and during voyages of exploration uh, around the world. So we have, um, from all across the world really, sightings of mermaids in, uh, such as in, uh, I believe it's in uh, the Baltic uh, sea in 1531, a mermaid is caught and passed on to the king of Poland to add to his collections there. Uh, in 1560, there's a recorded sighting of mermaids by a Jesuit community in Ceylon, just uh, of course near, uh, just in the, Indi in the Indian Ocean. And closer to home, we have um, more sightings of mermaids around the British coast. Uh, there's a very um, notable sighting around 1737 uh, in Exeter and actually the sighting is reported to the Royal Society uh, at that time and there's two sightings in 1809 and 1812 off the coast of Caithness off the coast of Scotland as well. I think what's interesting when we think about notions of mermaids is to think about the other kinds of sea creatures in folklore who have similar qualities and similar attributes to mermaids as well. So in certainly in Scotland and Ireland, there's notions of uh, selkies, these creatures that, are, uh, that move from the form of seals to humans. And similar folklore tales are told of them, of them uh, coming ashore and becoming uh, married to fishermen often, and what it takes to sort of lure the selkies back to, back to the sea. So this notion of uh, the mermaids travels through a lot of different cultures, even in uh, the British Isles during this time. So you must be wondering now why mermaids have this connection to the Royal College of Surgeons, why we're talking about them today in the Hunterian. And the answer I want to give to that is uh, with this image here. And wonderfully, uh, some of the items I'm referring to today have actually been arranged by the staff of the library here at the back of the room. So there'll be time to see these um, after um, uh, I finish talking um, later on this afternoon. So with this image here, we're jumping forward to 1822. So in July 1822, accounts start to appear in newspapers in this country 
of a display of a mermaid in Cape Town. And this manuscript shown on, on screen here is a written out account of a report in the newspaper about this mermaid being seen in Cape Town in, in Africa by a Dr. Philip, a representative of the London Missionary Society. So Dr. Philip um, sees this mermaid on show in Cape Town and writes the newspapers uh, in this country uh, about them. And it says, it's, a, it's remarkable, I've seen this, this is a real mermaid, uh, I can see it with my own eyes, it must be true. And well, ultimately what he's seeing, the mermaid in question, is a creature which was purchased by a man called uh, Captain Samuel Barrett Eads. And Eads was the captain of uh, a merchant vessel called the Pickering. And Eads was the captain of this vessel, um, sailing in the Far East around the Dutch uh, East Indies. And he actually picks up, he rescues some uh, Dutchmen who have uh, fallen from their ship and gets friendly with them and then they travel to uh, Batavia uh, in the Dutch East Indies. And they tell Eads about um, a mermaid. And they show Eads this mermaid and Eads is so entranced by this object, this creature that he sees, that the Dutchmen say have been passed, uh, have been shown to them by uh, a Japanese man, that Eads decides to buy this specimen of a mermaid. So he, um, he pays $6,000 for his mermaid, uh, selling the boat, selling the pickering in question to, to purchase it. And it's this mermaid that he buys that is shown in uh, Cape Town and is written about and we can see being described on this page here. And it seems what was happening by the mermaid being displayed in Cape Town was it was one part of almost advance word about the mermaid because Eads was going to take it to London and show it, display it in London and make a fortune by so doing. And that's what his plan was. And so after being seen in Cape Town, Eads travels with his mermaid uh, to London, the specimen, this dried object of a once, uh, to him, living mermaid. And we all know what it's like to um, enter uh, the country after we've come back from holiday, um, to go through customs. It can take a while to get through customs. And it was no different for Eads, so much so that um, his object is actually held by the customs when he arrives in London. And it's held in the customs house. And because Eads wants the opinion of an expert to help him sell the notion of uh, the specimen when he's in London, he asks for the assistance of one of the most noted anatomists of the time, a man called Ever Everard Home, um, a man very much associated with the collections here. Um, Home can't visit uh, the specimen in the customs house. So he sends, uh, he asked uh, his uh, colleague William Clift, uh, creator of the Hunterian Museum by this time, to inspect the mermaid on his behalf. So this is what this manuscript is part of. This manuscript contains uh, Clift's account of seeing this mermaid in uh, the customs house. 
So I've got a nice little image here of this man, um, William Clift. And Clift's a hugely important figure in the history of the Hunterian Museum. Uh, I'm sure I don't need to go into too great a depth to uh, explain why that was the case with, uh, with an audience like yourselves today. But just to sort of uh, give you the bare bones of uh, Clift's relationship with the Hunterian. Um, you know, Clift is apprenticed to John Hunter towards the end of, uh, as it turns out, towards the end of John Hunter's life. And in his apprenticeship, he uh, makes drawings, assists in the care of the uh, ana anatomical museum that John Hunter has uh, put together. Uh, Hunter dies in 1793. And uh, between 1793 and 1799, Clift looks after the collection, copies out many of Hunter's unpublished manuscripts, and, and really builds up a very strong working knowledge of the collections John Hunter had put together. Uh, so much so that the order he had sort of uh, helped impose upon the collection that when in 1799 uh, the company of surgeons was asked by Parliament to take over uh, Hunter's collection, it was said that the collection was in better condition than at Hunter's death due to the work Clift had done in that six-year period in arranging and uh, transcribing uh, the materials. So he's a, a man noted for his expertise in uh, anatomy, um, but also a man who is a very, very skilled illustrator. And it's key to remember Clift's skill in anatomical uh, drawing. Um, and the reason being is this. So this is the second half of the manuscript I just showed uh, just earlier. And this, is, this, this manuscript contains Eads's account uh, sorry, uh, this contains Cliff's account of, of, uh, of Eads's uh, mermaid. And unsurprisingly, to an, an anatomist as skilled as William Clift, Eads's uh, mermaid is not a real mermaid. Sorry for breaking the news uh, of this uh, to you. Um, Clift believes that the specimen that Eads pur purchased was constructed from a salmon, which was attached to the torso and cranium of an orangutan, and um, the mandible of a baboon as well. So it was a composite creature that had been um, put together, but Eads was, was convinced uh, it was a mermaid. Now, in the, in the note that um, Everard Holm had sent to Clift, saying, go and see Eads's mermaid at the customs house, he said, um, keep, your, keep your opinion of what this item actually is um, to yourself but make sure you, te you tell Eads. So if you think it's fake, you know, make sure Eads is aware of this. And we, th we think that's, that, that was the case. So Clift, after seeing this in the company of Eads, he tells him this is not a real mermaid. And that didn't stop Eads after the object left customs. Um, Eads went on to display it, um, just uh, in, in rooms opposite the Turf Coffee House, which, if we think of the geography of London, this building was situated on the corner of German Street and St. James's Street in, um, in um, St. James's, so near Green Park Tube Station now. And this was, this, this was the roaring success of the summer of 1822. Um, the, this, this drawing was made by George Cruikshank to help advertise um, the mermaid being on display in, in the Turf Coffee House. 
and it was hugely successful. There was, uh, the reports are that over between three to 400 people a day went to see uh, the mermaid, paying um, a shilling a time to see the creature uh, being on display. But after a while, there are some more dissenting voices, people who've gone to see it saying, well, this, this is not really a real mermaid. We know what mermaids look like. They should be uh, alluring. They should have long hair. They shouldn't look like this. And Eads makes um, a terrible mistake when these voices of dissent uh, come through because he says that um, he has been speaking to Everard Holm, the noted anatomist, and Everard Holm has told him that this really is a mermaid, which of course hadn't happened. You know, William Clift had told, told Eads that, it, that, that it was a fake. So in Eads's attempt to, um, to um, promote uh, his, uh, his object, he makes a terrible m mistake of saying that. So word gets out, Holm uh, is incensed, and, uh, and William Clift uh, writes um, for the, um, the Morning uh, Herald, one of the newspapers of the day, an account saying this is a travesty of my opinion. This is not a real creature. This is a fake. This is um, not a real mermaid at all. So support for um, uh, Captain Eads fades. Uh, numbers in attendance at the, at the Turf Coffee House start to decline, so much so that by January 1823, um, it closes down, the exhibit of the mermaid closes down there. So what we take from this is it's uh, this interesting point here of how much uh, Eads wanted um, expertise. He wanted the voice of science to, 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 to say this really was a mermaid. It, wasn't, it, it, didn't, it didn't just need so people to go and see it. He wanted an expert opinion to prove the case um, of what he was actually exhibiting. So there's lots of pamphlets and drawings made at this time with almost the pro and con arguments against was it really a mermaid or not um, shown through. And this is a, an example of an image we have in the Wellcome Library of what um, the mermaid was supposed to look like uh, as well. So I mentioned earlier on that um, Eads was the captain of the ship. Um, and I said that Eads sold his ship to pay for the mermaid. Um, this uh, came as news to the man who was the actual owner of the ship, uh, who actually got very upset that uh, his ship had been sold uh, for a, a fake mermaid. And so uh, our captain Eads uh, ends up being taken to court by the ship's owner and having to go back to sea to pay off the money that he owed uh, the ship's owner for the object he thought would make him uh, his his riches. So this object, this mermaid, gets passed on uh, from uh, Captain Eads's son. Uh, he passes it on to the owner of the Boston Museum in America. Uh, so by 1842, our, our mermaid is back in uh, the USA. It traveled all the way from Japan through Cape Town to uh, London as now back in America, where it reaches into the hands of uh, this gentleman here one of the most uh, interesting Americans of the 19th century, it's safe to say. This is the showman extraordinaire P.T. Barnum. So it's in Barnum's hands that this uh, fake mermaid becomes um, the creature known as the Fiji mermaid. So uh, F-E-E-J-E-E, -E -E, the Fiji mermaid. And 
what's interesting about this is almost the example of Eads showing, his, uh, showing the mermaid failed in London, but it was a great success for Barnum in America. And it all comes down to how Barnum marketed uh, this mermaid. He, was, uh, he again uh, made clear that there was, um, there was a man of science who, who knew that this actually was a mermaid. And the man of science was a gentleman called Dr. Griffin of the London Lyceum of Natural History, who'd observed the mermaid and said, sure, this was a scientific fact. Um, and then Dr. Griffin came along at, at the shows of, of Barnum and, and explained uh, what, what, he, what he thought. Um, what really happened was Dr. Griffin was actually uh, Barnum's lawyer who he employed to play this man of science. So we can see here how science needs to be used to uh, validate claims. Um, but in Barnum's case, he just makes up the expert. You know, doesn't actually get, in Eads' case, he gets in uh, Everard Holm or gets in William Clift. Um, Barnum just makes up his expert. So I think the, the thing that's worth noting here as well is just there's still this demand to see and to believe in things like mermaids. No matter that sort of um, reason and science is telling people that such a creature can't exist, there still seems to be this public curiosity to see um, anomalous creatures, um, let's say. Creatures that we don't really think there, there must be uh, um, a part for in the natural world as voices of exploration um, venture out across uh, the globe. So, uh, importantly as well, this, this creation of Barnum of the Fiji mermaid um, makes, makes it more of a case for others to follow in his example. So this notion of the Fiji mermaid results in more and more people claiming to uh, put on show mermaids, mermen. Um, here's a slide of one, a, a handbill for um, a merman being displayed, a mermaid and merman being displayed in London uh, towards um, the end of the 19th century. So you really get the sense that you know, um, the, 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 the desire to see these kinds of creatures still exists uh, during, during the, the, the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, in no small part to what Barnum has been doing uh, in the 1840s and 1850s. And as a result of this, more and more mermaids, mermen, start to end up in not just in traveling shows and in sideshows, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and are visited by the population in such a way, more and more of them start to enter uh, the collections of museums uh, in both Europe, uh, Britain, and America uh, as well. So one such mer creature that ends up in a museum is this one here. So we've talked a lot about um, the Eads uh, mermaid, and this is a creature that some of you may have uh, seen before. It's had a lot of media attention in the last few years. This is something that was cataloged as a, as a Japanese monkey fish when it entered the collections of the Horniman Museum in 1982. And it entered the Horniman Museum's collections um, at, at that date after it had been passed on from the collections of Henry Welkin. So uh, moving on to um, Henry here, um, one of the joyful facts of Henry Wellcome's collections is their breadth and uh, their variety. And it's just worth remembering as well that the huge nature of the collection Wellcome put together from the 1890s to 1930s 
Um, it took about 50 years after Wellcome died to um, get a handle on the object collection that he put together. So the vast majority of objects Henry Wellcome collected during his lifetime were dispersed after he died to other museums, uh, not just in this country, um, but across the world. Yes, I know a representative from the Wellcome starts saying there are actually Wellcome objects in other museums. It's, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it, it is the truth. Um, and what's really interesting about this is the fact that we might not have all of the objects that Wellcome collected together still in our holdings in the Wellcome, but we do have um, the paperwork. So this is an image that, this is an image that um, I have to reassure you, this is not how we look after material in the Wellcome Library now. This is a picture that was taken a few years ago. Um, this is an image that conservators, once they see this, they start having, they need to get smelling salts to help them recover. This is not how we look after our collections, uh, I hasten to add. But what it does show is these kinds of ledgers, these kinds of little index cards, these notebooks, these archives, they track um, the, the, the purchase of material by Wellcome and also its dispersal of, as well. So we can trace where objects uh, have gone and where they were purchased from when they entered Wellcome's collections and when uh, perhaps over time they may have left uh, Wellcome's collections. And that's where uh, things come in with me. So that's Mermaid I showed you that was in the Horniman Museum. Um, there was a project in the Horniman Museum a few years ago to put um, some of their material on loan to different museums and to find out as much about it before it would go on uh, loan to, to uh, s some museums. And they wanted to trace the origins of where this uh, item came from. And so I was asked to help um, part of my role in the Wellcome Libraries to do um, some outreach with regards to uh, Henry Wellcome and his collections. So I traced things back through our archives to items like this. We have a large number of auction catalogues from an auction house called Stevens's which was based in uh, Covent Garden. And fascinating, fascinating uh, auction house, which uh, if you want to know more about it, we can maybe uh, ask some questions about that um, after the talk. But it's a, it was an auction house that specialized in the natural world in many ways. And so it was unsurprising that um, not only was Welcome uh, uh, somebody who spent a lot of time uh, purchasing material from Stevens's. But it's no surprise that if we trace things through, uh, and we find here uh, an auction for the September 1919, a section on the property of an officer, a collection of native weapons, carvings, etc. Uh, we work our way through that catalogue and we find um, under lot, let me just get it right here, under lot 391, we have purchased for 60 shillings a mermaid. Uh, Japan mermaid, papier-mâché body with fishtail, 20-ish inches long, 9 inches high. So that's the origins of where the Horniman mermaid actually came from. But understandably, this wasn't enough for the curators in the Horniman Museum. They wanted to find more about the construction um, of their object. So they've used, you know, the, I, I assisted in tr using traditional archive sources to say something about um, the object here, um, but they wanted to use more modern techniques. So this is an image of the Horniman uh, mermaid about to go for a CT scan, 
and to be, uh, if you want, digitally dissected. So what I want to do now is um, play a film for two minutes and we'll have the, the, di the dialogue appearing on the screen uh, describing what they found when they put uh, this object through a scanner to find out what it was actually uh, made from. So just bear with me a minute. There we go. Oh, no, are we getting that? Yeah, there we go. No, it's like I have the words appearing. There we go. So the gentleman on screen um, describing this, the gentleman called Dr. James Moffat, he carried out um, the experiments here. There we go. Um, I think the key aspect from that is this detail about it being papier mache. So um, James has sort of shown there what the Stevens catalog was making out all along, that it was papier mache that was one of the key components of this creature. It wasn't like the object that had been owned by Eads, that had been shown by Barnum, that had been inspected by Clift, something that was a monkey and a fish put together. This is the, the, the Horniman mermaid, there's no monkey involved, is one of the key aspects um, of it. Let's just return to where we were. Oops, F. there we go, oops, excuse me. Right, so that's what science taught us. And as I mentioned earlier on, one of the aspects of this uh, work I've been doing on mermaids is once you find one, others tend to appear. And this chap is in the Science Museum. Still owned by uh, the Welcome, but part of uh, on permanent loan to the Science Museum's uh, collections. And I, I really like uh, this mermaid here. It, it reminds me of the spitting image puppet of Michael Foote, which you might remember from the 1980s. But he seems almost about to ask a question with his, sort of his, his finger uh, pointing up um, just there. But, but what we could do as well is once we worked out um, what number, which acquisitions number this was, we could go back, unsurprisingly, back to Stevens's, back to that auction house, this time in 1931, and uh, find the entry for that particular mermaid and find it described in lot 83, Japanese mermaid, two babies, and a fine specimen beaver mounted on a wooden stand. Now, unfortunately, I haven't tracked down the baby mermaids. Um, they might still be out there somewhere. But again, you get the sense of more and more of these mermaids being um, produced uh, towards the end of the 19th century. And some of the research by uh, Paolo Viscardi, um, the main curator involved in these objects at the Horniman Museum, um, he's been looking at um, notions of uh, Nagoyan uh, mermaids from Japan and what part uh, creatures that were made for um, processions and shrines in Japan, what part they had in this story and whether there was 
uh, tradition of making those kinds of specimens in Japan, and that possibly the um, the object that Eads um, got a hold of in the 19th century, that that's the origins of what it was being used for uh, at that time. And after that, you almost get the sense of once this craze for mermaids uh, happens after P.T. Barnum, that there's ones being made to order uh, by um, uh, makers in, uh, in Japan once trade opens up between the West and Japan um, in the 1850s. And again, once you find one mermaid, you seem to find another. Um, myself and Paolo were doing this project together when we heard about a mermaid, this mermaid from Buxton Museum um, up in Derbyshire. And fascinatingly, this creature was passed on from the welcome to the Horniman in 1982, uh, from when the Horniman then passed it on to the Buxton Museum um, after that. So what happened a couple of years ago is that the Buxton mermaid and the Horniman mermaid were reunited together in a little exhibition uh, in Buxton to great acclaim. Um, they got, got a lot of attention on the BBC News website at the time. And uh, Anita Hollinshead, who's, who's based up in Buxton, has been doing some research on this mermaid and discovered that this came from the collections of a colonial surgeon, uh, Mr. Graham of Sierra Leone, um, and unsurprisingly, the, the welcome purchased this from an auction at Stevens's uh, as well. So we get the sense of possibly a tradition of making these items in Africa uh, as well. So the story's becoming a, a more and more global one uh, as time has gone on. So myself and Paolo thought we'd, uh, with the discovery of the Buxton mermaid, we thought we'd reached uh, the end of our story. But then, as I've uh, intimated, um, Along came a sort of an inquiring call from someone who saw um, a window display at the Welcome featured um, the museum, uh, the mermaid from the Science Museum. And he contacted me going, um, I have a mermaid. Um, do you want to see it? To which I replied, uh, absolutely, yes, I do. And so myself and Paolo gave a talk, and this gentleman brought along uh, th this family heirloom uh, of, uh, of their mer mermaids. And there's myself and Paolo. Um, and this is the pub that said at the start of the talk, this talk sort of um, derived from. And this is us. Um, um, the mermaid's the creature in the front, just to be, just to be clear. And um, yeah, I, 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 it looks like some sort of beard growing competition between myself, Paolo, and the, uh, and, 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 and the merman in the front. Um, of, of the picture. But it's, as you can see from that, it's the same kind of style as the Horniman, um, uh, Merma, uh, Horniman Merman and, and the Science Museum uh, Merman, in the sense they've sort of got one claw out and one sort of retracted, almost in a sort of crawling position. Very different to that position that the, the, the mermaid that Eads had in the 1830s with, with, the, with, the, with the hands up towards the face. So yes, we were really delighted to make the acquaintance of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of the merman on that occasion uh, just there. So let's try and uh, bring things uh, to um, a conclusion at the end just here. And I've left up the image of um, William Cliff's drawing of uh, Eads's mermaid, which he saw in 1822. I mean, this is such an important image. I can't stress enough for the, the story we're trying to tell today, how important this is. And this whole notion of um, fake mermaids being a construction of fish and, um, and monkey 
you know, this really seems to come from this drawing and analysis that Cliff does uh, at that time. So I want to finish with three points uh, that has come out from um, the research I've been doing uh, with regards to mermaids over the last few years. And the first point is with regards to expertise. So this has been a story when you think about um, a bit like sort of Captain Eads with his mermaids. He wanted an expert opinion uh, up upon the object that he had. William Clift supplied it, but it wasn't really what he wanted to hear. Uh, once this was in the public domain, support for Eads starts, starts to fade. Um, there was the expertise that Barnum used with his, with, with when the mermaid was passed on to him, but he just made up his opinion. He just made up sort of the expert who, who voiced uh, his opinion on, on the mermaid. And we think we should consider as well the expertise in actually making uh, these creatures as well. Um, certainly the, uh, the creature that Clift encounters a very, very clever um, object uh, being produced uh, at, that, at that time. Um, curiosity, you know, the, the huge numbers of people who went to the Turf Coffee House. You know, there were many other um, shows on in London at that time, as described by one of the books at the back of the room um, today. But something about um, the mermaids in 1822 caught people's attention, and many people went to see it, as I saw. Um, the Horniman uh, mermaid in recent times, every museum it got passed on to in its little sort of tour, um, it saw those museums saw an uprise in, uh, in visitor numbers to see to see this item that had been passed from the Horniman. There's something about mermaids that often attracts people's uh, attention. They're still fascinated by these kinds of creatures. And sort of notions of ownership as well. Um, I think today we sort of we sort of ask questions about how objects in enter into uh, museums uh, collections and often uh, indeed how they leave them uh, as well. And I suppose it, it, certainly the, the last image of myself and Paolo with the, 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 the mermaid from the gentleman who had contacted us, it does make us think as well um, how many other mermaids uh, are out there um, swimming around and waiting to uh, be discovered. Thank you very much. Thanks.